Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and today on the show, we have the athlete dad. Now, hold on a sec. What does that mean? The Athlete Dad is a new podcast out there that's had some world-famous athletes who happen to be dads, who have done amazing things, climbed the highest mountains, they've surfed the highest waves, they've backpacked and done everything in every known environment on Earth, oh, while they've been fathers. So the guest today, Mr. Ben Gibson, is the host of that podcast, and he's also pretty successful in corporate America over at Slack. Uh, and as we record this, the day a couple days after Christmas, he's turning into season two in his podcast. So it's going to be an exciting episode today. So first, I'll introduce, without any further ado, my guest, Mr. Ben Gibson. Ben, how are you today, sir? I'm doing super well, Matt. Thank you. I had a chance to get up early. I get some skiing in before heading into work today. And so I'm feeling very refreshed, recharged and excited for this conversation. Oh my God. So down the rabbit hole, we dive. You just said some magical words that I hope that the listeners are already cued in that to start your day, you engage in an exercise that has you feeling refreshed. So can you just start off that right down? Let's just get into it. Can you start off by talking about why you do something like that to start the day and what impact it has on your day and your world? So I think the mountains are where I do some of my best thinking. And I, I generally, the idea also of starting the day with something difficult and there's also just a lot of beauty that comes from being in the mountains in the early mornings with you know, the sun hasn't risen yet, the moon is high in the sky, you get to experience the sunrise and the alpine glow shining off the peaks. And so it's not any one thing I would say, but it's a lot of things that I just find a lot of satisfaction in. So knowing I had to do some work today, I got up around 4 a.m., got my coffee, got some breakfast in, hit the road. And luckily, I live fairly close to the mountains. And I do ski touring because the resorts aren't open this early. And so I'm skinning uphill and doing some laps again before the sunrise comes up. And it's just such a beautiful experience. And again, an opportunity to do some really deep thinking in an uninterrupted environment. Awesome. So just for some context for our listeners, Ben lives, I think you said you're in Bend, Oregon. Is that yep, so? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest. And so when you're out there alone or in the morning time, what are you thinking about? Well, it's interesting. I think sometimes I go with a specific thing that I'm already thinking about that I really want to stew on. Mm -hmm. Today was more of a day where I just let the thoughts kind of flow. And I didn't have anything in particular that I wanted to think about. And so I actually start to dive into more of a kind of a meditative state. You know, oftentimes mm. when you're doing an endurance sport, there's a lot of 
mental downtime, I guess you would say. And so what I find really helpful is to focus on things that get me into a rhythm that get me into a sort of meditative trance. And that's everything from my breath to my steps or my skis and just focusing on really finding a rhythm and finding a rhythm. And so with each step and with each breath, I fall deeper and deeper into this meditative state. And then the thoughts that want to present themselves. And oftentimes it's either a moment of curiosity where I go, oh, interesting. Let's think about that. Or it's something that I really just let pass and let the thoughts continue to flow. And you you say you're a recovering workaholic. I'm a recovering control freak. And so I've been trying to practice a bit more of letting things go. And so I think when I'm in the mountains, there's only so much you can control. And especially when it comes to your thoughts, it's often nice in the mountains to let those go as well. So... I feel like a very Michael Singer-like surrender experiment type message I just heard is that you don't go with the perfect plan. You go and you simply be in your present and you let the thoughts flow to you. And then mm-hmm. as the thoughts are flowing, you attempt to maintain a meditative state where you're in this free flow of creativity and the perfection of whatever's happening. That's the way I would frame it. And when it comes to being a highly functioning workaholic or a recovering perfectionist, I'm with you. I think so we use the word control freak. I would say, yeah, that that was me to a T for so many years until yeah. I learned the, the value of surrendering to the moment and letting the universe or your faith or whatever comes to you flow to you and going with that energy rather than trying to control everything mm-hmm. perfectly. Yeah. That, that really connected with me over time when I finally figured out it doesn't have to be the perfect plan. Just enjoy the journey rather than try mm-hmm. to win every race and just blindly win everything without enjoying what you're yeah. doing. I used to be at that place in business. How does that connect with you? Being someone who's successful in business and in staying incredibly fit and being a full-time father and husband, how do you manage or manage to live in abundance in all those different places? Yeah, I think we all eventually get there. At least this is my perspective. I think we all eventually get there in our life. It's just a matter of whether we accept that sooner or later. Like I mentioned, I used to try to control everything. I felt like what I was missing when I was focused on controlling the moment was I was focused on something down the road and I was not focused on what I was doing right now. And life has a funny way of jolting you back into the realization that you don't really have much control over anything. So the more I started to release expectations or make it so that the end result was the successful thing that I was looking for and really tried to just start enjoying the process and being present and I guess being more adaptive to the situations that were coming at me, the more peace I found, the more that the outcomes that I was looking for ended up happening Mm -hmm. rather than when I was trying to control things. And so I think the living in abundance really was being really clear about what I want to get out of life, but approaching it with a sense of very little attachment to the outcome and just trying to find satisfaction in the moment of experiencing as I'm going through it. And so whether that's being a dad, whether that's being in the mountains, whether that's being in corporate America, starting a side business, all of this is really just coming to, yes, I would love to get to these points, but it's really important that I focus on just the moment. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, a fellow athlete dad of mine, who's also a climber, we wanted to go out and climb a big local peak called Middle Sister. It's a little over 10,000 feet, 16 miles round trip. And the weather that day was just horrible. And we didn't know what kind of conditions we were going to get. And normally, when you're going out to climb a mountain, your goal is to summit the mountain. And I learned a long time ago that your goal 
while you can have a goal of summiting, your pr- your main goal needs to be something else. And and for me, a lot of that goal is to go enjoy the mountains and then safely come home to my family. Yes. And so we went out with no expectation. We went out to just go, let's just go as far as we can. Let's just see what this mountain offers up to us in terms of conditions and weather. And we'll just see how we do. And because of that, we ended up just going out and having a wonderful day, tinkering around in the mountains and playing around on the glacier and doing some interesting route finding and ended up summiting on a beautiful bluebird day when the weather finally cracked open these beautiful blue skies and had a wonderful day. And I think had my intention been, well, if we don't summit, it's a waste of a day. I would have missed all that joy that we had along the way of just the joy of the midnight darkness and smells of the forest and the full moon and the interesting puzzle piece of route finding. Yeah, it's I think moments like that really remind you of let these things go and just try to do the best you can with what comes and what presents itself. And more often than not, things start to end up working out the way you wanted them to. I totally love that. Living in abundance is finding satisfaction in the moment and not being so uh, attached to the outcome and letting the mountain give you what it, what it offers you and still enjoying it and getting home safe. Brilliant. You made a statement in there that you would go and play in a glacier. I have no idea what that even sounds like. It sounds super <laughs> freaking cool. So can you paint a visual for us? What does it mean when you're playing on a glacier? Yeah. So a glacier is essentially a river of ice that is pouring off the mountain. And as the river of ice pours down different features, it starts to break up into what's called an ice fall. And depending on how dramatic that the earth underneath the glacier is, the more dramatic the ice fall can be. And different seasons show the the glacier in different ways. So if there's a lot of snow on the glacier, it might just look like you're walking on a snowfield. And if it's in the summertime and the snow is all melted, it's this beautifully crevassed open pillared river of ice. And so we caught it before the winter had finally put blankets of snow over the glaciers. And so, you know, a lot of it is this really interesting circuitous path to find your way up the glacier under pillars of ice and around crevasses and just this really interesting, like foreign environment that you find yourself in. But yeah, that's really kind of what it means to safely play on a glacier. When you're saying this, I'm thinking of a video I saw. I don't know where it was on YouTube somewhere. It was Alex Honnold who was using these ice picks to climb up some, what sounds like what you just described, rivers of ice that formed in a beautiful pattern. Is that what you're talking about? Are you climbing up with these ice picks up the glacier like that? Not on this particular glacier, typically Mm -hmm. where I have done ice climbing. So yes, I've done ice climbing on something called the Coutts Glacier on Mount Rainier, which is, again, the landscape underneath the glacier determines the shapes and the starkness of the glacial features. And so the Coutts is this very steep kind of drop off that the ice is flowing over. And so it creates this ice chute with near vertical ice climbing. And it actually starts at about 11,000 feet on Mount Rainier. So you have to climb up to 11,000 feet and then with two ice axes and crampons do multi-pitch climbing up the glacier. This particular day was more just using a single ice axe for safety and weaving our way through the glacier up until we got to the summit ridgeline. I'm going to ask you in a minute what's really challenging and difficult for you. When you just described that, so much fear went through me of climbing up using an ice pick and being, being an ice climber. It reminds me of the Nintendo game. I used to have Ice Climber. I never <laughs> made it to the top because I always kept falling. And I watched those Alex Honnold videos and I can imagine you're ice climbing. And that just terrifies me to think about that. 
ice breaking yeah, or something. Yeah, and of course, that's always a risk. And I think Alex Honnold actually has this great quote. He talked about it in Free Solo where people look at him and they go, that is so risky. That is so unnecessarily risky. And mm-hmm. he goes, yeah, for the average person off the couch to go and try to free solo Al Cap, it's very risky for them. Yeah. But he has decades of climbing experience. So he knows the terrain. You can hear him speak about the rock and the textures of the rock and the precipitation and all these different factors that go into how he assesses risk. And so what I find is that the more experienced I get, the better I am, the more knowledgeable I am at evaluating and managing risk. And so while it is a risky endeavor, because of the experience that I have and the trust I have in my equipment and the ability to really understand the terrain that I'm navigating, it actually becomes a pretty joyful thing to get to play and go do. And getting to go climb vertical ice climbing on Mount Hood up through what's called the Pearly Gates. There's this beautiful sort of rime covered chute that takes you through what you literally believe could be the pearly gates to heaven, the way that it opens up. And conditions were great. Snow was solid. I was the first one through. And so unroped, free soloed up through these chutes with two ice picks and ice crampons and didn't feel any danger whatsoever just because I was able to assess the risk and manage the risk appropriately. So, Thank you. Can you take us back to a time, and it can be yesterday or it can be your first time, just take us back to a time in your climbing journey when... There was some uncertainty, doubt, or fear that crept in for whatever reason was. What comes to mind for you? Sure. I would say there's always a little bit of fear, uncertainty, and doubt anytime, especially you're pushing the envelope a little bit more. Okay. One of the bigger moments where I had significant fear and uncertainty, I was on a climb on Mount Rainier. Okay. I had just found out my wife was pregnant with our first son, and... I got sick the day before we were supposed to climb. And Rainier is one or something, 14.4. And uh, so it's not so high, but you still can definitely experience altitude sickness. and, And that can happen pretty quickly. And so being sick, I was already very congested and having trouble breathing and just like coughing the entire time. And summit day, we're at like 13,500 feet. And I'm so congested that I'm having trouble breathing. And I'm just starting to panic because I'm like hyperventilating and I'm feeling really nauseous and acute mountain sickness is setting in very quickly. And I just freaked out. I was like, what am I doing on this mountain? I'm about to be a dad. I I can barely breathe. I knew that I was sick and I still went. What is wrong with me? And so that was a moment where I, you know, really made the smart decision to turn around and go down. And I was devastated because I had never had any setbacks in climbing until that point. And I think there were a lot of factors at play, you know, one being ill and the other, like the shock of being a new dad and kind of the way that you assess risk shifts pretty dramatically when that happens. But that was a really big moment for me to realize that, okay, my goals for climbing need to adapt. They need to shift with who I am now as a dad. And so that was a really important moment of fear, uncertainty and doubt that I experienced. Yeah. And big learning lesson too, going from the ego, always, I just got to finish it no matter what, I got to finish it to now assessing Mm -hmm. the risk, probably a little more wisdom because you're going to be a dad and you're not feeling great. What is acute mountain sickness, by the way? Because that sounds to us who are unanointed in the climbing world. What does that exactly mean? Yeah. So physically it means, so what happens when you go into altitude, it is not that there is less oxygen available. It is that there is less air pressure. Okay. And so your lungs need pressure 
to get the oxygen and to be able to absorb it. And so when there's less pressure, you're not absorbing as much oxygen. And so you go into a hypoxic state, a lack of oxygen. And so how that typically manifests is that your lungs have trouble and your brain has trouble. In its extreme sense, you have something called cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, where your brain swells or your lungs fill with fluid. Acute mountain sickness is like the cold versus cerebral edema might be like the flu. And so it's still serious and can develop into something like edema or anything else. But typically, it feels like extreme nausea, headaches. And depending on whether it's more prominent in your brain or in your lungs, it can manifest as confusion, poor decision making, you can have trouble seeing a little bit, or you can just start kind of packing up a lung and having trouble breathing. And so acute mountain sickness is kind of like the earlier stages of you really struggling to adapt to altitude. And so that's typically why when you're going up a mountain, you acclimatize, you go up slow, you climb high, sleep low. It's to allow your body to get acclimated to the lower pressure at altitude. Okay. So for the person at home who doesn't know the difference, who thinks that oh, why do the people at the top of Mount Everest, why can they're like a hundred feet from the top and they got to turn back? Why would that happen? I imagine this has something to do with it is you get so high at some point, you just can't function anymore, I guess. That's true. And at a certain altitude, especially on a peak like Everest, there's something called the death zone. So 26,000 feet is generally the marker where a human cannot live for the long term above 26,000 feet. Now you can get altitude sickness much lower than that. But 26,000 feet is really where like the physiologically, you cannot live for long periods of time above that. Uh, Turning around on a mountain is actually a a bit more complex than just the altitude sickness, because that is a big factor is that the longer you're at altitude, the more likely you are to develop symptoms. The other thing is the weather. And so typically, when they're turning around, it's because they have a hard time that you either need a summit or you need to be on your way back down. Because the most stable time to climb a mountain is typically at nighttime because it's cold. And so things are really solid, frozen, and stable. When the sun starts warming up the mountains, when things start to go south, you're at higher risk for avalanche, rockfall, all kinds of bad things can go wrong as the mountain just starts to deteriorate, which they are just constantly doing. And so yes, there is the altitude factor, but it's also this reality that if you haven't hit the summit by a certain time, you're now exposed to not just altitude, but poor weather. And most mistakes climbing happen on the way down. And so you're now over exuding yourself. There's all these other variables that you have to play. Getting down is when you need to be sharp and you need to have time and you need to have good weather. And so if you find yourself absolutely thrashed in bad weather, and you're starting to experience altitude sickness, you are that much more likely to experience an issue on the way down. I'm I'm sitting here wondering to myself, why does Ben do this? Why does he subject himself to all of this? And then I'm going to ask you, but I know in my own mind why I do it with golf. I host a golf tournament every year, the Wednesday after Christmas, and that was yesterday. And the course says in the morning, we have to cancel today because the weather's so bad. The course is underwater. And my first thought was, oh my God, I got to find a new course. And we did. We found a new course. I didn't want to stop because of the weather. I wanted to find a different place mm-hmm. to play. So I, I get the addiction or the love of the mm-hmm. sport. But why do you continue to climb? What is the real joy for you after all these years? I think that is the ultimate question for every climber. And I think it never becomes easier to answer the question even the more we climb. 
I'll tell you this, the moment I knew that climbing was going to be a really important part of my life. So I actually never grew, I didn't grow up in the mountains. The mountains were a foreign concept to me as a kid. Even into my early 20s, I lived in San Diego. I was a beach guy. I tried to surf every day. I had no interest at all in even hiking. My wife had to drag me out the door to get me to go hiking. And my dad's life dream was to go and hike in the Himalaya. And it got to an age where I had heard this my entire life. I want to go hike in the Himalaya. And I was like, I don't know. It sounds like it sucks. <laughs> Honestly, like it sounds not interesting. And I had no idea what that would even be like. And he got to an age where I realized that he was never going to take action on it himself unless we did as his kids. Okay. And so one Christmas, my wife and I, we bought him a, a ticket to Nepal. We paid for trekking and we said, this date, you got to have gear, you better start training because we're going to go trek into the Annapurna region, go to Annapurna base camp in Nepal. And in learning about this place that I was going to be spending a week just to hike to, I try to learn everything I can about it. I try to learn about the history of Nepal, the country, the people, the cultures, the food, everything. And in learning about Nepal, invariably, you learn about this rich history of mountaineering. And for whatever reason, even though I knew that mountaineering was a thing and people climbed mountains... When you are there in the Himalaya, in the amphitheater of the gods, and you are walking for a week just to get to base camp, you realize that like the real adventure starts there. Imagine that, walking a week at altitude just to get to base camp, just so you can start climbing the world's biggest peaks. And for me, it just struck my soul as that's the ultimate adventure. That's it right there. I always wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. I didn't become an astronaut. But one of the reasons I wanted to become an astronaut is I wanted to go explore foreign worlds. I wanted to see things that very few people had seen and be places that very few people had been. And going into the mountains is a similar thing for me. And I remember the first thing I did when I got home from Nepal was I booked a climbing trip, booked a guide. I'm like, I'm going to go climb Mount Shasta in Northern California. It's a 14,000 foot peak. And I just threw myself into it. And I remember summit day, which summit day, quote unquote, starts at typically around midnight. And so you start at midnight to give yourself the longest amount of time to be able to climb in the best conditions and get back down safely. And I think that the defining moment for whether people like mountaineering is summit day when you have to wake up at midnight after you went to bed at seven o'clock. So you probably didn't sleep. It's cold because it's middle of the night and you're, you're climbing in the dark and you're climbing at altitude. And I just remember thinking, I love this. <laughs> this is amazing. This is awesome. the real deal. And I think a lot of it was that exposure to, again, foreign environments. Like the higher you go, the more interesting things get. And also the idea that it's not easy to get up there. It's not easy to go and see these rocks at the summit. And those rocks become exponentially more special because of what it took for you to get there, the pilgrimage that you had to go on, both physically, mentally, spiritually, because it's hard the whole time, right? Like even people that are really good climbers, it's still hard. It never gets easy. You just get more efficient. You just get a little smarter. And so climbing for me, I think, is this continued satisfaction of exploring both the mountains, but what it has also become is exploring myself. Mm. When you're out there for three days, and you're just hammering your way up through a mountain, it's this weird contrast of being incredibly present and also completely zoned out. 
with just your thoughts to stew upon. And so I think that there's an exploration piece of it internally and externally. I really get a lot of satisfaction of, again, seeing these unique places, but also in doing really hard things. And there's a lot that I could unpack around doing hard things in life and why I believe people need to be doing hard things. But that's, I'd say, the final piece of it. You bring it back full circle. You started today by sharing that you like to do hard things to start your morning. And that's what's making today like an awesome day to start is you start in the mountains to start with something challenging with your thoughts alone and you really enjoy the exploration piece of it. So thank you for all of that. You took us down for those of us who are seasoned or who are novices at the idea of climbing. You related it in such a beautiful way to being able to overcome hard things and challenge yourself with hard things every day in order to find some peace. I couldn't agree more. I love the way you shared that. And I'd love to go into some hard things type subjects. And I know that there's one particular hard thing that you had to endure and work through when in your the birth of your son. So if you could talk to us a little bit about the, the circumstance I'm talking about, we'd love to hear that challenge, please. Sure. But there's this interesting thing about life in that we talk about the seasons of life. And I think in one way that the seasons of life present themselves is when life is good. There are seasons of prosperity and things are going really well. And then there are seasons of tragedy and darkness and when things don't go well. And for whatever reason, I felt this way my entire life is that whenever things are good for a little too long, I start to get a little suspicious that something is likely to come my way that is going to be my new season of life. And one of those really dark seasons for me, but also for my family, for my wife, for a lot of people in my family was the birth of my first son, which is really hard to say because the birth of your first child is one of the most special moments of your entire life, right? Like it's, there's, I I equate it to like the, the anticipation of Christmas day, right? The anticipation of your first child and you're hopeful and naive and all these things. It comes and it's nothing can prepare you for that moment. And we had just come off of our baby moon in Hawaii and we were living a wonderful life and we thought we were fully prepared. We were going to crush it, this parenthood thing. And my wife started to have some kind of like issues with fluid leaking and whatnot. And basically what ended up happening, long story short, is that the her amniotic sac had ruptured. And this was in when my son was only 24 weeks. So he was still inside, but we had realized that she had a rupture to her amniotic sac and she was leaking fluid. So we were like, okay, but we can do hard things. We can focus on this. So we, our realization shifted from, okay, we're going to be at home for pregnancy to my wife is just going to be in the hospital until baby comes. And then they're going to safely deliver via planned C-section when the time is right. But again, things don't always go as planned. And so despite the fact that we had gotten into our hotel room and we wrote our goals on the board, we had written like the key milestones, get to 28 weeks, get to 32 weeks, get to these specific developmental milestones. But we had a pretty rapid decline in the way that he was progressing based on the loss of fluid. And we came in and my wife was getting checked and she wasn't dilated. And we actually took that as a good thing. We're like, great. So he's not coming yet. So we're going to order some some dinner and we're going to hang out and just have another day at the hospital. And the doctor comes in a little bit later and she goes, so I think that because you're not dilated, baby needs to come today. And we go, baby needs to come today. Okay. So what, 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 how soon are we thinking? She goes, we need to get you into surgery and be doing surgery in 30 minutes. Oh my gosh. Wow. 
and you were planning on your wife being you and your wife being there in the hospital for the next two months or until 40 weeks or whatnot. And you're at 25 weeks right now. And the doctor says 30 minutes. And yeah, being in the hospital for that long is already, okay, this is a challenge. This is unique. And I remember the day before you have to sit with the doctors and they have to tell you the realities of having a child born this early because they knew that no matter how it went, there was a risk that he was going to come at any time. And that conversation was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to hear because the doctor laid it out of, okay, a, a baby born before 30 weeks has a pretty significant chance of having permanent disabilities for their entire life. There's a strong possibility that if they're born anytime in the next couple of weeks, they're going to probably live with you for the rest of their life. There's a possibility that they are frequently hospitalized with all kinds of issues because at that point, every single thing can go wrong. The brain, the lungs, the stomach, like ev- everything can go wrong. And there's also a strong possibility that baby doesn't make it. Baby can make it hours days, weeks, months, years, but there's also a possibility that because of the lack of development and ongoing health issues, the baby doesn't make it very long. And we were shocked, obviously just shaken to our core. And yeah. and so when we had that moment of, you got 30 minutes and we're babies coming now, but they obviously leave it to you. And so the doctor leaves the room and I looked to my wife and we just had this unspoken moment where we just, we knew we were in agreement, like baby's got to come. And I just remember turning to her and just saying, we get to meet our son today. And that was one of the most profound moments because it was out of our control. And yet we felt really at peace with that decision. And so, yeah, we go into surgery. He's born one pound, 15 ounces. He's under two pounds. And if you can imagine a living human that weighs under two pounds, it's shocking that they're even alive. And you think about how much more growing they're supposed to be doing on the inside. They're now on the outside. And we're going to have to create this fabricated environment to try to help them develop. And right away, it's a, a shock because you're thrust into these two emotions. The unbelievable joy of I'm a father. This is my son. My wife is a mother. Wow. Like how wonderful. And yet, the scariest moment to go through because almost immediately you start to deal with the ramifications of such an early birth. He had a brain bleed. His lungs are not built to function on his own. So he had to be intubated almost immediately, which has a whole slew of cascading issues. His stomach is not able to digest food. Basically, again, everything that could go wrong is going wrong in that moment. And it is just by the sheer miracle of modern science and probably some divine intervention that he was able to basically make it through the NICU experience. We were there for about four and a half months, make it through the NICU to come home. And so that was really the big, I would say, probably the darkest moment of my life. And I think part of that was really that we come back to that, the anticipation, the expectations, everyone has this like idea of what their life is going to be like. And I had always envisioned myself being that classic dad with my kid. And it felt like we had to mourn the life that we thought we were going to live because that, that life is now gone. That life has died. We are not going to live that life. We are now on this radically different alternative path and doing, making the best we can. And I think for that reason, that was really what was difficult about that. Four and a half months, you and your wife, did you live at your house? Did you live in the hospital? Like, Because that just sounds such a difficult and taxing time unknowing what's going to happen with your son. There could be a different challenge every day. What was that four and a half months like in particular for you emotionally 
Ben, as your son's being born and now your expectations and things are different. What was that emotionally like for you? So we were very privileged and lucky in that we only lived about seven minutes from the hospital. We could not stay at the hospital. We could be there all day. Okay. We could visit in the night, but we could not stay at the hospital with him. And so we were there all day. Every hour of the day, we were there. And at night, we would just check in. So every hour, they do what's, what are called cares, where they're checking on him, taking his stats and feeding and things like that. And so every hour or so, we would call and talk to the nurse at night. And mind you, my, my wife is still pumping milk. And so in the middle of the night, I called myself the milk engineer because I was like on bottle duty of teeing up my wife and cleaning all the bottles and sanitizing everything. And so we, we just tried to get into a rhythm as much as possible of here's our nighttime routine with checking in. We're at the hospital every day. And it got to the point where It was so wildly out of our control that it became a moment of what are the things that we can control. And the thing that I really love is that my wife and I shifted right into like, we are on a team. My son is on the team and we are mentally going to take from the podcast, we are going to be eternal optimists on this. And we are going to do everything within our control to just pour as much love as we possibly can onto this little baby to get him home. And so by the end of his NICU stay, I don't know if we're supposed to be able to do these things, but we were basically doing all his cares. We were able to feed him. We were able to like change all his stuff in the hospital. So sometimes a nurse would come in and we're like tinkering with all the machines like, oh, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, what are you doing? But that was how we were able to make the most of it. And we would read to him all the time. We'd read to him at bedtime, just like we would do. And so I think emotionally, it was certainly a roller coaster, but like trying to focus on what we could control and trying to engage with him as much as we could made it a little bit better. But there, there were moments where it sounds silly in hindsight, but it was one of the more devastating moments because he started, it was closer towards the end of his NICU stay. And there was, there were several times in the earlier stints where, you know, he has bradycardia, where he's basically like his heart rate is dropping so low that they're getting to the point where they have to revive him and he's not catching, he's not breathing anymore. And so you're, and you're sitting there and the nurse is starting to worry and she's over here, oh, let me just get the doctor involved and the doctors come rushing in and everyone comes, and so there's many of those moments and wrecked with adrenaline. But one moment that was almost more devastating than everything was that this one doctor came to us and she said, I think he's gonna be okay, but he just probably won't be an Olympic track athlete. And it sounds silly to say that now, but at the moment, it was, it was devastating. I, I walked out of the hospital weeping because my son was months old and we were already putting these limitations yeah. on his life. And I just remember I was weeping to the car and I look at my wife and I'd be like, I'll be damned if he doesn't become an Olympic drag athlete. I will do anything that it takes as his father to give him every opportunity to be a normal kid. And so, yeah, the emotional roller coaster was something that I still catch myself having to like take a break for. But I, I do feel really proud about the way that we came together as a family unit to get through that together. I'll say that was really impressive to hear that because I know that when my wife and I had our first real challenge with our kids, there was a fall from nine foot off a deck and mm. that led to an emergency room visit. And the moment that happened, instantaneously we didn't have to say it or we'd have to yell at each other we were on the same page pretty instantly and it feels like you had that that's such a blessing 
to see that you had that. And it just, it, it came to you. And then thank you for sharing this, this story. This has been challenging for any parent to hear and definitely much respect to you and your wife for enduring and overcoming. How's your son doing today? How old is he now? And how's he doing today? Yeah, so he's a wonderful, lively, mostly normal four-year-old. Yeah. And you would never know that he was born preterm. He's finally, I think, over the hump where every time he got sick before he was hospitalized. And so that was the the hardest thing about it was like being at a NICU, we weren't done. Oh, and mind you, he came home with chronic lung disease and he came home from the NICU January, 2020. So we were already in this hyper-vigilant, hand-washing, sanitizing, hyper-sterilized environment room. He came home with a breathing tube and a 25-foot-long tube so that we could actually move him all around the house. And we had to be insane about cleanliness. And then as we all know, March 2020, a a respiratory virus takes over the world. And so we have our newborn son with lung disease in the middle of a respiratory pandemic. And every time he gets ill, he gets hospitalized. And the trauma of him being born preterm and the trauma of being in NICU wasn't something that we ever really got to move on from because every time he got ill, he was hospitalized again. And especially in COVID times, we couldn't both be in the hospital. And just the the concern of the unknown of if he catches it, how will he respond with scarred, underdeveloped lungs? I think he's finally over the hump of when he gets sick every time he will be hospitalized. We still have to administer steroids and nebulizers and all kinds of kinds of crazy stuff when he does get sick. But on the surface, he is your perfectly wild, normal boy. Nice. Yeah. Oh, okay, good, good, good. So thank you for sharing your story here with your son and happy ending so far, or at least positive progress so far. It's really great to hear this. And uh, I'd love to go to a different subject. You are an athlete dad. Part of that is the dad, part of that's the athlete and your husband. What's your professional vocation? What do you do for work? So I work in tech sales for Slack, Slack being the collaboration tool. And so I've been in sales roles for, I actually didn't finish college. Sales was my college education. And so I've been in a variety of sales roles most of my career. And that's really where I spent my time today when I'm not skiing or being a dad or podcasting. And so, yeah, that's something I find a lot of satisfaction. And I think, again, there are similar challenges and things to overcome as you find in athletic endeavors. And so it's something I've always really found a kind of a a fondness for. Mm -hmm. What is something about being in sales and this career that you find challenging? You're really never done improving. There's always some ways to improve. The thing I really always come back to is that I'm just constantly getting to perfect my craft. Again, coming back to just enjoying the moment, if I could try to get promoted as much as I possibly can and accelerate my way through the business and do all these wonderful things. But when I really just focus on perfecting my craft as a sales professional, as a leader, as a communicator, all these different things, it's when I find the most satisfaction out of it. And because in this profession, there's really no limit to the amount of perfecting your craft that you can do. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of enjoyment out of that. I also really enjoy the puzzles that solving problems for businesses can be, right? And I love learning about how do these businesses operate and what makes them tick and what are their challenges and how do they scale? Because generally businesses are the same, right? Make money, shave costs, add more customers, all that. But like, they're all so unique and nuanced. And so I love finding out about them, how they operate and trying to solve 
business problems. And so I think that those are the things I get a lot of satisfaction of is like this, this curiosity around how to solve the puzzle of the business and solve their problem. And then just the never ending perfection of your craft. Hmm. Fantastic. Love to stay here for a few minutes before I wrap up because I just love this idea mm-hmm. of perfecting your craft and mastering your craft. So, can you give us insight? How do you go about mastering or perfecting your craft? Then, what comes to mind for you there? I think that it starts, I guess, conceptually with big things and perfecting your craft. I think is a continued focus of narrowing the scope down to smaller and smaller things. I'll give you an example. Getting into sales generally, you might just be focusing on the big things of learning your product, presenting your product, asking the right questions, right? There's all these big things that you're focusing on. How you think about perfecting your craft might just start be a little bit more about tonality in the way that I ask questions or the timing of how I ask questions or the way the specific words give you a different emotional outcome than other ones and how to leverage those as tools in your quiver. And so, whereas before I'm just getting into sales, I'm focusing on the big things, I'm really starting to think about the nuance of all the little aspects of how I sound and the words I choose and when I choose them and how I cater to the person that's in front of me and how that all shifts things. And of course, that I think even then you start to dive deeper and deeper into the smaller things. And I would say the same thing for anything like climbing or parenting, right? You start with the big things that kind of shock your system when you're new to it. And now you're really focusing on the the nuance and the granularity to it. And I think perfecting your craft is really finding enjoyment in the nuance and the little things and being endlessly curious about it, right? Because I think that a lot of people, they accelerate their careers, they get to a VP level by VP by 30 or 35. And then it's now what? Mm -hmm. You're going to work for another 60, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. So now what? Now what do you do? Is it you get to the C-suite? Cool, then what? And so I think perfecting your craft for me has always been about playing the long game in terms of career satisfaction, because I know that I'm going to constantly get to develop and those things, promotions and titles and companies, they'll all come with time. But if I get a lot of satisfaction out of those nuances and perfecting that, I'm going to always find fulfillment. I think the thing that I had this crazy realization one day when they, I was learning about, I think it was uh, the documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And, and I may be butchering the name. Okay. Yes. But yeah. when I learned, yeah, when I learned about the idea of these apprenticeships that people would go on, where like in these world-class sushi restaurants, where the guy that makes the rice would have to make the rice for seven years. Yeah, I know, right? Can you imagine that, right? Could you imagine, imagine if you only got to do one thing at your sales job, you only got to write emails. You didn't even get to send it. You didn't get to reply to it. You only got to write the email and you only got to do that for seven years. One, you'd have to find a deep satisfaction in the nuance and perfecting your craft in how you did that. Mm -hmm. But how good do you get at that point? I think at that point, if you're making rice for seven years, it's almost like the matrix. Like you start to see all the individual grains of rice. You see how the acidity of the vinegar plays just right. Maybe you start to notice that the temperature of the room dictates a lot and that the temperature of the rice and the vinegar start to play in these really interesting, unique ways. And so by the time you're actually able to advance to something else, you just have such a rich and deep understanding and appreciation for that thing that the world slows down for you. Mm. And so I think that that's something I always come back to when I think about honing my craft. I'm like, of this thing, I'm in my rice making 
decade Absolutely. of perfecting this thing. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I love that analogy. It's a great analogy. I'm, I'm thinking of you as a climber, me as a golfer, just thinking about the granularity of the sport or if we're talking selling, the high level ideas mm-hmm. of asking the right questions and understanding what the problems are, what the solution could be, and then the nuance of your tone. And that is a great idea on how to master craft. I love it. And at the core of all of this, and I, I know the listeners are cluing in, cluing in on this because this is a core value that I have and a lot of successful people have of curiosity and always wanting to learn and constantly sharpen that saw. So I love that you're talking about all these things. And you even dropped the words eternal optimism in there too. So that was nice to hear those. I'm curious, how do we find out more about you, Ben, and what you're doing and your podcast? So tell us a little bit about where to find you. And let's chat about the podcast for a few minutes before we wrap up. Sure. I will just say one thing. I think you, you hit it with the curiosity. The thing that I have realized, and I am by no means an expert, but the thing that I have realized in my own life is that the quality of my life is often determined by my level of curiosity. Hmm. If I am curious about things, I am showing up, I think, as my best self. And that can be like if your kids are losing their minds and your initial reaction is anger and frustration, if I can shift that to curiosity, ooh, I am feeling some big feelings right now. You are feeling some big feelings right now. Interesting. Let's approach that with some curiosity. And I, I inevitably show up as the best version of myself there. When I'm climbing, ooh, what's over that ridge line over there? What's up there? Okay, let me go explore a little bit more. Or I wonder what the limitations of my body are. I wonder how they would do at altitude. Let's go find out. And again, I think that curiosity, man, the level of curiosity, if we could just do one thing as people, whatever roles we're in our life is increase our level of curiosity and how we think about our days and our goals and our ambitions. I think that is a drastic step in the right direction of finding fulfillment and satisfaction. And that leads us well into the podcast. The podcast says The Athlete Dad. You can find us on Instagram at theathletedad or theathletedad.com. And I believe people make changes in their life, the most important changes in their life, either in moments of inspiration or desperation. And I actually found myself in a moment of a little bit of both. I was a dad of two with a lot of climbing ambitions. I wanted to go climb mountains like Denali. I want to go spend time climbing in the Himalaya. And I was feeling inspired by being a dad and being a climber. But I was in a moment of desperation in that I was failing pretty significantly at balancing those two things. And no matter what I did, I just felt like there's no way I'm going to figure this out on my own. And I thought the best thing to do is surely there's got to be other people out here who have this more figured out than I do. Or if nothing else, we all might have one thing that we do well with that. And we can just get a community and we can all throw our stuff in the pile and we can all become better by learning from each other's mistakes and what we actually figure out to do well. And so that was where the athlete dad came from. I thought, what if we go and talk to elite amateur or professional athlete dads who are pursuing physical pursuits at the highest level and also trying to balance being a great father and being a great husband. And through that, I actually was able to create a bit more clarity around these core pillars for my life, but the core pillars of what the athlete dad is all about. And that's really about modeling ambition, seeking balance and intentional integration. The idea that It is a responsibility as a father and as a husband to be ambitious, to model what it means to go out into the world for your kids and pursue life at the highest level, whatever that means. But there's a responsibility here too to bring that home, to bring those lessons of ambition back and to also not neglect your responsibilities of a dad and a husband. Because we've all seen professional athletes who have been world-class record holders came at the expense of their families. And so that's where the balance comes in is we've got to find a way to 
strike a balance. The short of it is I don't think we ever do strike a balance, but it is in the pursuit of trying to attain balance that I think we bring the lessons of ambition home. And then the integration piece is that, okay, I don't want to just go out and climb mountains in the absence of my family. I would love to find ways to integrate the people that I love into the things that I love so that they can also bear witness to the benefits bear witness to the joy that I get out of it, get these lessons, Mm -hmm. but also so that we can do these things together. And it's not like dad's out there achieving his goals while we're at home. It's let's, can I spark that inspiration for you and your own ambitions by bringing you into this world? And yeah, so we try to talk to amazing dads who also happen to be doing incredible things from climbing the world's biggest peaks to sailing across the Atlantic in a rowboat to just dads doing amazing things, surfing the tallest waves on earth and everything in between. And I think the thing that's really great is that although we do hit on the athletic aspects of these amazing men and these amazing fathers and these amazing husbands, the bulk of our conversation centers around the dad portion of it, of like, how do we do this? And what I love is that no one's got it all figured out. And I don't even attempt to show that I have it all figured out. I'm very much a student here trying to learn in these conversations. But I do think that the way that we have these very authentic, real, candid, and really exciting conversations, I think has been really beneficial in growing this community of men that are just trying to get more out of these really core pieces of their life, their family, their pursuits, their careers, etc. Yeah, so you can check out the podcast on all major platforms, go to the website or engage with us on Instagram is the most common way. And we've got season two is coming up here at the beginning of the year with some amazing men lined up to talk about this idea of balancing family and physical pursuits. And yeah, I'm very grateful to be a part of these conversations, to be in the orbit of some of these amazing humans and to get to keep having these conversations and asking these questions. Awesome. I'm looking at you right now on Instagram, uh, the athlete dad, uh, exploring the intersection of physical pursuits and fatherhood. You got to check this out, listeners over here at Instagram, the athlete dad, there are a number of clips and oh my gosh, this picture right here, if you're watching on YouTube, you might be able to see this picture that I'm looking at. Where exactly, what's happening right here in this picture? on top of a mountain. Yeah. That's my good buddy, Mark. And that's our day on Middle Sister, where we just went with curiosity to see how it was going to go. And actually, what you're looking is you're looking up the mountain. So this is us trying to navigate in the mist up this ridgeline of what's the route? How do we get to the glacier? How do we get to the, the summit ridge? Ooh. And yeah, fortunately, it cleared up quite a bit more. But yeah, that's a wonderful trip with a fellow athlete dad. And that's us uh, on the summit. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. This has been amazing. Thank you for sharing your story with us and introducing us to your podcast. So the Athlete Dad Podcast, you can find it season two starting here at the new year in 2024. Let's move to wrap up here with a little bit of what I call our lightning round. And a couple questions for you to wrap things up today, Ben. One would be if there is a book you read or a periodical you read, something that you might read or listen to that offers you inspiration, what might be one or two books or articles, things that have inspired you in your life? That is a great question. I don't know if there's any one specific one that gives me inspiration, but I am completely obsessed with history. I go down these rabbit holes of history and I just find such great inspiration because I feel a connectedness to people of the past and the things that they were able to accomplish. And these people were no different than us and they built the world that we live in today. And so to be curious about the causality of things and how people 
overcame challenges to accomplish amazing things. I just find a lot of deep satisfaction in going down history rabbit holes. Okay. History rabbit holes. Have you been down the rabbit hole Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast? Absolutely. I mean, I had some really long training days when I was training to climb Denali. Yes. And those people are like, they're like six hour episodes. It's a good thing I have a six hour day ahead of me because that's <laughs> all I'm doing today is listening to Dan. So I'm glad you said that because me too, man. That's why I listen to a marathon training is I listen to yeah. that podcast. How about music? If you're a music person, is there a song, a genre, an artist that really inspires you, fills your bucket bin? Yeah, music is such an important part of my life. I play music and I think it's gotten me through a lot of really exciting times and really rough times. And so I actually have specific playlists curated for moments where I really need to dig deep. So I have one called Run Push, where I'm on a run and I, and you will probably appreciate this, where you're on a run and you're like, this is not my day, but I have a lot more running to do. And I need to dig deep and find inspiration. And it's not necessarily any one genre. Sometimes you just listen to a song and you get goosebumps. And it just, it, for whatever reason, really taps you, whether it's the words or the music or both. And so that run push playlist is every time I have a, a song like that, I go, oh, yes, this is going to be one I'm going to use to dig deep. I even created a playlist when I was on Denali of, I called it Summit Stoke. When uh -huh. I was starting to experience some fear, uncertainty, and doubt, I needed some summit stoke. I needed to revisit. And so that was actually a mix of electronic house to some rap to some rock to some like really chill reggae. Because I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to need, but I might need to chill out and relax and have fun. And that's where some reggae is going to come in. And just like, I love the, a good bass, a reggae bass. And, or I might need some like some rap to really shake me out of my funk. Awesome. And so, yeah. I, listen to a lot of different kinds of music. Awesome. It's been fantastic. We'll wrap with the final question. I love to ask every guest. You're on the Eternal Optimist podcast. What does eternal optimism, what does that mean to you, Ben? That is a great question. I think eternal optimism, it's not, at least to me, again, is not turning everything positive. You and I, we worked in an industry where everything was shifted to being a positive. But I think it's more of that there is something to be gained or learned from every moment. And again, the more that you can be present in that moment, the more of that life is coming your way, the more you're able to experience it, learn from it, grow from it. And so I would say that being an optimist is somebody that is being very present and is trying to absorb as much of the present moment as possible to learn, to grow, and to find fulfillment. So that's how I define it.